The Guardian. Welcome to Science Weekly. Alongside our regular non-COVID episode, we're continuing to explore the science behind the outbreak, delving into some of the issues it's raised. So do keep your questions coming in. Head over to theguardian.com forward slash COVID-19 questions, all one word. In today's episode, we're delving into another topic that has been causing all manner of trouble over the past few months, herd immunity. Very early on in the crisis, it got the UK government and their scientific advisers into hot water after it came up during discussions around whether to try and contain or simply delay the spread of the virus. But when it comes to infectious diseases, herd immunity is an important epidemiological concept. Sometimes it's achieved by a percentage of the population catching the disease and recovering. But more commonly now, we get herd immunity through vaccines. In either case, it amounts to how much of the population needs to be immune to stop a particular disease from spreading. Herd immunity occurs when the number of people who are susceptible to the disease drops below a certain threshold, and that's this herd immunity threshold. I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Hi, Rachel, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Ian. How are you? I'm good, good. How is lockdown treating you? What's it like for a a mathematician in uh, this situation? (laughs) In some ways, uh, it's been a really interesting time because it's quite rare for us to be required to write about current affairs as quickly and as in so much detail as we'd normally do. That's Rachel Thomas, one of the editors of PLUS, the Millennium Mathematics Project magazine based at the University of Cambridge. Rachel, we got a question from a listener recently asking about how herd immunity is calculated. But before we get to that, we need to get our heads around this other issue, the R0 or basic reproductive number. What is that, first of all? So the basic reproduction number is a value that you give to the way a disease can spread. So for a disease, if everyone in the community is susceptible to the disease, anyone can catch it at all, it's the average number of people who an infected person will go on to infect. For COVID-19, when it arrived in the UK, it was thought the basic reproduction number was around 2.5. But then the R that we talk about in the press now, which changes with lockdown, which would change with vaccination programs, that's the effective reproduction number of the disease. That's how many people an infected person today would go on to infect. So as you'd expect under lockdown conditions, that effective reproduction number has really dropped down. And so that really is influenced by pretty much everything we do, right? everyone we see, any levels of immunity in the population, pretty much everything that determines who is in contact with whom. Yeah, absolutely. And and actually, although you can think of the basic reproduction number that are naught as being inherent to a disease, that number in itself will actually be a bit different in different countries. So at the start of the pandemic, the R0 here in the UK was probably different from the R0 in a place like Iceland or somewhere where there's more uh, less density of population so exactly it's affected by everything we do and it's the thing that governments around the world are using as one of their parameters to sort of decide 
what actions to take and how to and making their decisions on how to manage the pandemic. You've talked before about how you need to be very careful when it comes to looking at an R value for a whole population because you can have different populations with different R values, say a population of people in a hospital and a population in the community which will have different values and maybe R values less than one. But if they come together, they can actually push it up above one, which seems counterintuitive to me. Can, can you explain how that works? It's very easy to understand why people think you could just maybe take some kind of average of these R values across different segments of the population. But these aren't isolated environments. If they were isolated environments, then you could just run those models for those individual little populations, but they're not. So thinking about hospitals and the community, there's staff moving between hospitals and community. There's As soon as someone is infected in the population, they have to move they may have to move into hospital as a patient. So the infections are moving between hospitals and community, as well as being generated within each of these populations. So you have to take into account of the transmission between the two settings when you want to assess the overall R of the whole population. And it might seem surprising, but it's a very complicated arrangement. And if you actually work out all the maths, you can see how it quickly gets quite complicated and there's a constant flowing of cases between the two settings. And if that transmission is big enough, then that can push the R value of the overall system greater than one, even though the individual values for each of the settings is less than one. So if you think about, let's think about with totally unrealistic numbers, which maybe are a bit easier to understand though when we're talking. So if we assume that an infected person in the community might go on to infect two other people in the community on average. So the R in the community is two. But let's say they also infect one person in the hospital. So actually that infected person in the community is now infecting three people. And if you think about an infected person in the hospital, we could have an unrealistic example of that they might create three new infections in hospital, but one infection in the community, maybe by a staff member moving between the two settings. So even though the R value in the community was two and the R value in the hospital was three, in one generation of infection, the person in the community will have created three new infections, the person in the hospital four new infections. So combined, those two people will have, been, will have created seven new infections. So that's a lot more people than just what you'd expect, seven divided by two is, is 3.5, which is a lot more than the R value for each of those settings. So how does this all feed into this concept of herd immunity? So the concept of herd immunity is a really common epidemiological concept. And it's not really a concept in a way, it's more a description of what happens if you have enough people in a population who are immune to a disease. So herd immunity occurs when the number of people who are susceptible to the disease drops below a certain threshold, and that's this herd immunity threshold. It's a really common concept, though. It's something that's used regularly for any disease that has a vaccination program. So things like the measles vaccine, all of those things rely on this concept of herd immunity to suppress that disease. And that's why you'll see, you know, recently over the last 
decade or so, measles starting to reoccur more often in the population because the vaccination levels in the community have dropped below that threshold. And it's actually not that hard to calculate, right, the herd immunity level? No, it's, it's, it's surprisingly simple maths. So if you have a basic reproduction number, so say 2.5, which is a decent estimate of what it was for COVID-19 when it arrives in the UK, then that's for when everyone is susceptible to the disease. But if you decrease the number of people, say half the people are susceptible to the disease, then to find out the effective reproduction number, how many people at that point will be infected on average by one infected person, then you times this proportion by the basic reproduction number. So half of 2.5 is 1.25. So in that case, you've lowered your effective reproduction number R to 1.25. And what you want to do, as no doubt everyone is now familiar with, is you want your effective reproduction number to be less than one. So to do that, you slightly, you just do a back of the envelope calculation. You just rearrange the numbers in that equation. And what you get is to get R less than one, starting off with an R naught of 2.5, you need 60% of the population to no longer be susceptible, to be immune from the disease in order to get that effective R down under one. Rachel, early on in the epidemic over here, there was a lot of fuss around whether the UK was going for herd immunity intentionally, as it seems that Sweden are doing at the moment, or whether that was something that was just being acknowledged as a, a byproduct of an infection coming through the population. I mean, the bottom line, isn't it, that you will develop some immunity within a population and it is then just a matter of um, how the virus spreads through and whether you actually reach that herd immunity figure that will be interesting for how you monitor the disease and the future risk of outbreaks. I think when herd immunity was mentioned, my personal view is that that was a real communication error. We don't know enough about the disease yet to know how we get immunity from the disease just from the spread of the disease through a population, whether it's temporary, whether it happens at all. So I, my hunch is that wasn't an intended aim, but herd immunity may be a consequence Usually, herd immunity is achieved through vaccination programs. And certainly the levels that you require for a disease like COVID-19 and given the death rates of a disease like COVID-19, we're only going to achieve those levels of herd immunity through something like a vaccination program. Unless, of course, there's much better treatments. We, we never achieved um, herd immunity for something like HIV and AIDS, but there's really good treatments. So that's the way that disease is being managed. So there's ways that diseases can be managed, but I think at the moment we will need a vaccine in order to achieve herd immunity. I mean, is it something you found troubling seeing, you know, a lot of this mathematical language very much in the spotlight now? And obviously it's being delivered to people in a way that they may not always be able to fully understand. I think there's been examples of good and examples of bad communication as there always is. I think there's been some pretty problematic slides occasionally. 
which a lot of the maths community kind of had a sharp intake of breath. But it is hard to communicate things when people haven't had the run-up of maybe having done maths at school to a certain level, maybe having done kept in touch with the maths after they've left school. But I think the effort should be made so that if people want to know, and I think what is interesting is how many people want to know this information. They don't just want to take it um, as being, it is okay now, it's not okay now. They want to understand why they're being told this. So I think it's both there's an appetite for people to try to understand things at a slightly deeper level and also I think it's a I think it's a responsibility of the people communicating to enable people to engage with that information. Rachel, um huge thanks for explaining all this to us. It's been really really helpful, really useful and fascinating. Oh, brilliant. Thanks. Thanks again to Rachel. You can find a link to Plus Magazine on the episode page at theguardian.com. And also, thanks for your support as listeners. Here at The Guardian, we believe that open journalism connects us and brings us together when we need it most. But our advertising revenue and newspaper sales are falling, which means we need your support to make sure that our open journalism stays open during this crisis and beyond visit gu.com forward slash support podcasts. We hope you can join us for tomorrow's COVID-19 episode two. In the meantime, keep washing those hands. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Podcasts.